All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Hi, everyone, welcome back to episode three of season two of Professionally Embarrassing. This week, we are doing as promised or as promised a couple of weeks ago, the Transparency Project review from the President of the Family Division, Andrew McFarlane. We're going to have a look at his recommendations and see what we think. So I am going to kick us off today with my case, which I'm sure a lot of you will have heard of by now. And it is the case of Siddiqui and Siddiqui and Siddiqui, which is an appeal from a decision of Mr Justice Mumby back in June or July of last year where an adult son who is aged 41 made an application against both of his parents who remain living together for ongoing financial support. Now, the original decision to Sir James Mumby dismissed the claims because Mumby decided that there was no jurisdiction to make the orders sought by the applicant. And there's a famous sentence at the beginning saying, it is beyond mine and counsel's experience to ever have seen an application such as this. I'm paraphrasing, but the idea was that the application was so wholly misconceived, there was never any jurisdiction to make the order sought. And for that reason, the son was not successful in achieving the outcome he wanted. Under Section 27 of the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973 and Schedule 1 of the Children Act 1989, under Section 23 of the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973, and under the Inherent Jurisdiction, all of which were dismissed roundly by Sir James Mumby on the original application. So rather than sort of slunking away with his tail between his legs, given that he was landed with a huge cost order in the first instance, the son decided to appeal and took the matter to the Court of Appeal with the rather novel argument that the dismissal of his original application was in breach of his human rights. And he wished for the court to determine that the fact that he could not apply for financial support from his parents was incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights and that his Article 2, 6, 8 and Article 1, Protocol 1 rights were engaged and therefore he should have recourse to a remedy that he sought. So briefly, Article 6 is obviously the right to a fair trial, Article 8 is the right to enjoyment of family life, Article 1 of Protocol 1 is the right to enjoyment, peaceful enjoyment of your possessions. And The Sun did originally run these arguments in the first instance, and Sir James Mumby found that none of them were engaged, and the applicant's various claims do not fall within the ambit of any of these rights. What the Sun says on appeal is that he accepts that there is no statutory format for him to make an application for money from his parents. So he accepts that as a 41-year-old whose parents remain living together and are not divorced, there is no recourse in current English legislation for him to make an application for money from his parents, ongoing financial support. What he says instead is that because there is no recourse, 
that is a breach of the European Convention on Human Rights and the UK needs to have a good long think about the fact that it doesn't have appropriate legislation for this remedy. So neither myself or Malvika are human rights lawyers, but I did do a little bit of human rights at university. So let's go back 10 years and see how much I can remember about constitutional law and human rights law. So the basic premise of the arguments made are the ideas of ambit, status and justification. So ambit is, does this claim fall within the ambit of human rights law? Are human rights engaged by this claim? Status, does the applicant who's seeking to say that his human rights have been breached have a particular status under the law? And has he been treated differently in law because of that status? And finally, is there a justification for that different treatment, which would mean that there is a breach of human rights and the rights are engaged and therefore the UK legislation is incompatible with those rights? That's the basic way in which the appeal was run. Bearing in mind, he instructed extremely senior counsel from Matrix Chambers, so I'm probably butchering a lot of his arguments in this, and I apologise for that. I'm going to run you through the arguments sort of piece by piece, and then you can hear what the judges thought about this claim. So turning first to ambit, and this is the idea about whether these claims actually even engage the idea of human rights. Is there enough in there to engage a substantive right set out in the ECHR? And if so, we move on to the next stage, so on and so forth. So Mr. Southie, who, Mr. Southie QC, who is the son's lawyer in this case, gives his submissions on ambit and says he relies on a number of authorities in support of the general submission that ambit must be widely construed. And I think that's generally accepted that, you know, the idea of ambit is not meant to be a very high bar. It's meant to be the first part that kicks off any arguments about whether UK legislation is compatible with the ECHR. And he says, look, Ambit is very widely construed, and what is required is that the subject matter must be sufficiently close to a substantive right protected by the ECHR, that any discrimination under under it would be prohibited. So he says, the son's claims for financial support from his parents come within the ambit of Articles 6 and 8 and Article 1, Protocol 1, and that Sir James Mumby was wrong to conclude otherwise. His overarching submission is that claims for financial support by children must come within the scope of Article 14, which is about statutory discrimination, because it is inconceivable that discrimination regarding financial relief for children on the basis of gender or race would not engage Article 14. So he says, essentially, because the test is low and because the statutory interpretation should be very, very broad, and because of the nature of the son's claims, which is that the reason that I can't get financial support from my parents is because the UK legislation doesn't sufficiently protect me, means that we are looking at a breach of the ECHR and we need to think carefully about how we rectify it. So, for example, in respect of Article 1, Protocol 1, which is about peaceful enjoyment of possessions, Mr Southey says that there is a case from the UK where a mother had challenged the child support legislation on the basis that calculation of the maintenance she was required to pay did not make full allowance for her housing costs and therefore interfered with her peaceful enjoyment of her possessions and that's JM in UK. And he says that case, that we're talking about statutory interpretation that takes money from certain people or may take money from certain people, is allowed to have been found to have breached the ECHR, then this case is analogous to that because the son's possessions are being interfered with by him not being allowed to make this claim for financial relief. Now, there's obviously a gaping hole in that argument, which I will get to in a moment. But generally, he says, look, of course, Ambit's engaged 
there must be recourse for at least looking at this under the human rights legislation. The contrary view put forward by Mr. Justin Warshaw of One High Court says, actually, whilst the test for AMBIT is wide, it's not unlimited. And actually a formulation of the proper facts of this case would be creating the capacity to bring a claim for a discretionary remedy under legislation designed to address other consequences. So there is recourse in Schedule 1 for children to make claims against their parents when their parents are separated or divorced for the purposes of tertiary education or ongoing education or training. That exists under Schedule 1. What Mr Warshaw says is, yes, that's fine. And the reason that exists is because the state has specifically legislated for cases where children's parents are separating and they are not able to access appropriate funds to be educated properly because of the fact that their parents are divorcing and it's, you know, their finances are getting confused. He says that that's not this case, bearing in mind the son's parents in this case are still together. That's not this case. And so whilst engagement of the rights is a sort of broad test, does it come under his Article 6 or Article 8 or A1P1 rights? Actually, what Mr. Warshaw says is no, because what's engaged is not a right, it's a possibility of a remedy. So as opposed to the JM and UK case, which was you have to pay child maintenance, the state makes you pay child maintenance, and if that is in some way interfering with your rights, that would be analogous to an Article one protocol one argument this is not that case because the son's not entitled to anything anyway he doesn't have the possessions already and he's not entitled to any claim as exists under the uk law so what this would be creating if the court allowed these arguments to succeed is a direct right for the son to ask for money from his parents in the face of existing uk legislation so mr Warshaw says of course that doesn't engage human rights legislation which is about whether uk law is compatible with existing rights what it would do is create a whole new discretionary remedy for parents under completely different law. So that's the arguments on ambit. Does it fall into the ambit? Son says yes, parents say no. We then look at status, which is about whether the son in this case is of a particular status, which would then be treated as discriminatory. And Mr. Savakusi acknowledges on behalf of the son that there is no case directly on this point and that there are factual distinctions between the cases relied on by the appellant and his situation. He sought to define the appellant status as being, in relation to the Children Act 1989, an adult whose parents continue to live together, and in relation to the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973, an adult child whose parents have not divorced. And he says that is a status, the fact that his parents are still together is a particular characteristic or status that means that this son needs protection. Well, what the parents say about that is there is a broad meaning to status. And of course, we need to be careful that people's particular characteristics and statuses are not considered to be not important or not inherent. But what Mr. Warshaw says is the effect that status involves is a personal characteristic. Persons or groups are distinguishable from each other, but it doesn't need to be innate or inherent. But being the adult child of parents who are not separated or have not divorced is not a personal or identifiable characteristic of the child, which comes within the scope of human rights, other status. So he says, I can see what you mean. Yes, there is a part of him that is a of a particular type, that is, he's an adult child whose parents are still together, much like me, much like Malvika. But 
that does not defer on him a particular protected status under human rights law. So these are the competing arguments about status. Then we look at justification. So if Mr. Southie QC is right that this engages the ambit of human rights legislation, if he's right that there is a particular status conferred on the son, which allows him to be protected under the law, the question becomes, is there justification for the difference in treatment of the son as opposed to a analogous person in the same position? And if there is, there's discrimination and human rights legislation is engaged. So let's look at justification. So what Mr. Southey says is finally, in relation to justification, there is no adequate justification, he says, for enabling some adult children to obtain financial provision, that is adult children whose parents are separated under Schedule 1, and adult children whose parents are not. So he says the discrimination is actually between adult children whose parents are separated and adult children whose parents are not separated. And in the first category, those children can claim financial relief from their parents when they are divorcing to ensure that they continue to fund education. The second characteristic, second group of people, this son, myself, Malika, we are not allowed to claim financial relief from our parents and that is discriminatory. That's the crux of his argument. And he says the focus should be on the needs of all adult children. If this is a needs-based, if this is needs-based legislation, so if we look at why this legislation under Schedule 1 exists, if it's needs-based and it allows for the needs of children to be met, why on earth does it meet the needs of some adult children and not others? That's his argument. So Mr. Southey submitted that there is no explanation why those adult children whose parents' relationships had broken down were more likely to need financial support than those who had not. And I suppose on my best day, I can see the force in that to an extent, if I thought that there was a substantive difference between people whose parents are separated and people whose parents aren't. What Mr. Warshaw says on this point is that the difference in treatment arising from the grounds on which the court has the power to make orders in favour of adult children is justifiable. So yes, there's a difference, he says, I accept there is a difference, but that difference is justifiable as under proportionate and democratic society per ECHR law. So he says, the extent of the powers of Schedule 1, which allow for adult children to make claims on their parents when they're divorcing, were made out of clear legislative decisions, and they had the clear purpose of prohibiting claims by an adult child, litigating against their parents who are not divorced. And Parliament had given this some significant thought when they came up with the legislation under Schedule 1 and under Section 23 and 27 of the MCA. So that actually... There's clear justification for this, and the reason for it is that the impact of divorce means that someone might be less likely to prioritise their education and so on and so forth. So he says, look, even if you accept that this is in the ambit of human rights legislation, even if you accept this man has a differing status, even if you accept that there is some level of discrimination here because he's treated differently to other people in the same position as him, that is adult children, but whose parents are separated as opposed to not separated, it's still justifiable under a democratic society and it's been thought about properly by parliament and there is no reason to allow human rights legislation to interfere with that. It's perfectly justifiable. So those are generally the submissions made by the parties on behalf of the son and on behalf of the parents. And what the courts say is this. It is worth repeating. Section 27 gives the right to initiate proceedings for a financial provision order only to either party to the marriage. There are then a number of further conditions before a child can apply. First, an order must have been made under Section 27. Second, it must be an order for periodical payments or secured periodical payments in respect of Section 27 6A, or an order for periodical payments in respect of Section 27 6B, 
that neither of those provisions applies to a lump sum order. And third, it must be an order in favour of the child. So they're being very clear about the current statutory rules. Section 27 allows for variation on application by a child of an existing payments order. Under paragraph two of Schedule 1, there is a direct right to a child aged over 18 to apply for financial relief and under paragraph six of Schedule 1 to a child aged over 16 to apply to vary an order for period of payments. In both cases, the power only exists if the child will be or would be receiving education or undergoing training or if there are special circumstances. Paragraph 6.5 is to the same effect as section 27.6b. Paragraph 6.2 prohibits the making of an order when the child's parents are living with each other in the same household. So there is a possibility, as I said at the beginning, for adult children to apply for financial relief in relation to receiving education, but they are prohibited from doing so specifically under Schedule 1, Paragraph 2.6, if their parents are living in the same household. The Court of Appeal goes on to say, I would also repeat that Sections 23 and 24 of the Matrimonial Causes Act only apply if there has been a degree of divorce, nullity or judicial separation. So again, only applicable if your parents are divorced. Accordingly, the legislative provisions, as Mr. Warshaw submitted, are clearly directed towards the needs of children in the context of their parents' relationship having broken down, manifested by divorce or parental separation. My next preliminary comment is that, although, again, this is not the issue in this appeal, I consider it appropriate to express my agreement with Lord Justice McComb and Lord Justice Stuart Smith's decision to refuse the appellant permission to appeal from the judge's determination that neither Section 27 of the MCA 1973 nor Schedule 1 of the Children Act 1989 can be read down under Section 3 of the Human Rights Act as to permit an application to be made by the appellant. So what the sum did at the close of the original first instance decision was make an application for the court to read down the legislation to allow him to do so, because otherwise it would be a breach of the ECHR or for a declaration of incompatibility, both of which failed, both of which he tried to appeal and both of which he was refused permission to appeal on. So he then made the substantive arguments on the bits that he was permitted to appeal for. So the court says, I propose to start with the issue of status, because in my view, it provides a helpful basis from which to consider the other questions. It focuses on the basis of the difference in treatment for the purposes of analysing how it is said to be discriminatory. So we're looking at status first. Status is a broad concept and deliberately applied broadly so as to ensure that, as explained by the European Court of Human Rights in Clifton, the UK, the rights protected by the Convention are practical and effective, and that where a state provides for rights falling within the ambit of the Convention, which go beyond the minimum guarantees set out therein, those supplementary rights are applied fairly and consistently to all those within its jurisdiction unless a difference of treatment is objectively justified. In the present case, the relevant status is said to either be an adult whose parents live together or an adult whose parents have not divorced. The clear answer in respect of section 27 is that there is no difference in treatment on the basis of any of these asserted statuses. The appellant's inability to make an application under section 27 is not based on his health or disability or the fact that his parents have not divorced. The difference in treatment of which he complains is also not based on the fact that his parents are living together. He cannot bring a claim under section 27 because none of the relevant requirements as set out above exist. He then says in respect of paragraph two of schedule one under the Children Act, the difference in treatment is again not based on health or disability. The court has no jurisdiction to make an order because the appellant's parents are living together. The question is whether this is a personal or identifiable characteristic of the applicant, taking into consideration all of the circumstances of the case and bearing in mind the aim of the convention. In my view, it is clearly not. As Mr. Warshaw submitted, not permitting an order to be made in favour of a child whose parents still live together does not run counter to the purposes of Article 14 or the aim of the ECHR. 
He then goes on to consider the analogous situation. He says, I also do not consider that a child of parents who are living together is in a comparable or analogous situation to a child whose parents are separated. As set out in Clifton, the UK, at the requirement to demonstrate an analogous position does not require the comparator groups to be identical. What is required is that the applicant must demonstrate that having regard to the particular nature of his complaint, he was in a relatively similar situation to others treated differently. This is sometimes said to require a specific and contextual analysis. I would repeat that the appellant is not treated differently because of his health status or disability. These are not relevant features in the context of this case. Further, as explained above, the appellant does not have a status which engages Article 14 at all. In relation to AMBIT, as to whether the appellant's claims under the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973 and or Schedule 1 fall within the ambit of any of the rights protected by the ECHR for the purposes of Article 14, the parties agree, and it is settled law, that it is not necessary for a breach of any substantive right to be established, and B, that it is sufficient if the facts in issue bring out the case within the ambit of one of the substantive rights, a concept which is broadly construed. So he looks at Article 6, he looks at Article 8, he looks at Article 1, Protocol 1, and he says, going back to basics, a difference in treatment of persons in analogous situations has to have an objective and reasonable justification. This means that the challenged measures must pursue a legitimate aim and that the means employed must be reasonably proportionate to the aim pursued. The aim in the present case, in respect of claims by children, but also claims by spouses or parents, is to address the financial consequences of a breakdown in the parent's relationship. In my view, this is clearly a legitimate aim because society has a clear interest in addressing the financial consequences of such a breakdown. Secondly, it is clear to me that the means employed is proportionate to that aim. The appellant argues that the exclusion of children whose parents are not separated is not justified. This, with respect, is to turn the argument on its head. Although this might seem to be the other side of the coin, it is not. It is the measures which exist which must be justified, not the absence of some other private law right. So he's saying you don't need to justify why you're excluded from them. You have to justify why they exist in the first place. And the reason that the existing legislation exists is to protect children whose parents are separated. That's where it ends, the idea of justification. And finally, he says, although this is a long judgment, for the reason set out above, it is clear to me that the proposed appeal is completely without merit. The judge was right to conclude that the subject matter does not come within the ambit of any of the rights protected by the ECHR. He was also right to decide that Article 14 does not apply. Further, and in any event, the relevant legislative provisions are clearly justified in the scope of their application and in not permitting a claim to be made by the appellant. This leads me to conclude that application for permission to appeal should be refused. So he lost again, and it's very clear from both the first instance and the Court of Appeal that an adult child whose parents still live together or are not divorced cannot make a claim for financial remedies. What do you think? I mean, I know I've lost my voice, so I'm trying to minimise how much I need to talk this episode, but do I really need to say anything? I haven't read the appeal judgment, but I did read the first instance judgment. And I remember laughing because the opening paragraph starts, this is a most unusual case. Indeed, so far as I'm aware, and the very experienced counsel who appear before me do not dispute this, the case is unprecedented. Certainly the researchers of counsel have identified no decision directly in point. The applicant's own description is that his applications are, quote, novel. I suspect that the initial reaction of most experienced family lawyers would be a robust disbelief that there is even arguable substance to any of it. I mean, when a judgment starts like that, you know it's probably going to go downhill from there. I was wondering why the name sounded so familiar. It's because the appellant also launched a claim against 
Oxford University a couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember, for not having a getting a first class degree. And that was dismissed by the High Court in 2018. Do you remember that? I do. I didn't know that was him. Yeah, it was the same guy. And it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, if the Court of Appeal had entertained this, it would have completely changed the landscape of what parents owe or the duties they owe to adult children and like I said I haven't read the judgment but I have read all the coverage around it and apparently Mr Walshaw QC who was representing the parents said these long-suffering parents have reached their own view of what is suitable provision for their difficult demanding and pertinacious 41 year old son his skeleton argument is littered with emotive references to child and children to be clear This is a man in his 40s seeking financial support from his elderly parents who are 69 and 71 years old, respectively. I think that probably sums it up, Maddie. Yeah, and I think just to add quickly, the reason that the Court of Appeal judgment is so long and so detailed and goes into so much law about the European Convention on Human Rights and the compatibility of UK legislation is to prevent this happening in the future. This is the last time that they will entertain this. And whilst it may have been a brave application in the first instance to then appeal it and say actually it's because your laws are wrong I think it was bound to land on the wrong side of the court of appeal and actually if you ever need a reason not to take something to the court of appeal it's because of the resounding no that you will get if you try and argue that it's because you're not doing your job properly so yeah I think the reason they did it in such length is to avoid any further claims of this nature and it certainly seems clear to me that no chance now no chance ever what have you got for us this week So I also have a money case for this week. There have been some really juicy money cases that have come out on Bailey. So that's why we both ended up with money cases. I do apologise in advance. I have a bit of a cold. It's not COVID. So listeners don't have to worry themselves unduly. But my voice isn't as lovely and reassuring and and nice to listen to as it usually is. So maybe I'm just tooting my own horn. The case I'm going to be telling our listeners about this week is a judgment by Mr Justice Mostyn, which was handed down at the beginning of the month. And helpfully, because we usually have lots of re-A's, re-B's, X and Y's and all that, it's actually called Cathcart and Owens. And there are a fair few financial remedy cases that are just truly awful. The litigation goes on for years and years. And unfortunately, this is one of those cases where the parties have been in and out of litigation for two decades. And Mr Justice Mostyn says, it's difficult to understand the psychological processes that drive such furious, hostile, embittered conduct over such a prolonged period. The applicant husband is 78 and the respondent wife is 66. And the parties were actually only married for four years between 1997 and 2001. During that time, they had a child by IVF treatment, whereby the husband provided sperm to fertilize a donor egg, which was then transferred to wife's uterus. The child, M, was born in March 2001, and shortly after the party separated. Their financial remedies claims were resolved in April 2002 by way of a consent order. So they agreed to the terms of the order. There was no need for the court to determine it. And that consent order specified, in effect, that husband would pay a lump sum of £1,825,000 to wife. She would transfer her interest in the proceeds of sale of the family home to him. And he would make periodical payments in the sum of 15 k per annum for her benefit and for school fees for M. I should say that that is within a context of husband declaring his 
net assets at over £10 million, and his estimated annual income was around £450,000. So there's enormous wealth in this family. Now, after the party separated, but before the 2002 consent order was agreed, wife had taken some preparatory steps to have a further child. In July 2001, about nine months before the financial proceedings concluded, she asked the fertility clinic to store the unused frozen embryos, which had been created with husband's sperm. Two months before the consent order was agreed, she started taking hormones with a view to having more IVF. But a month later, she stopped taking those hormones. Husband said that he had no knowledge that she had done this before that consent order was agreed, and her failure to disclose those preparatory steps amount to fraudulent non-disclosure, and that her conduct was also an offence under the Fraud Act 2011. So that's the first allegation. After the 2002 order, wife attempted to have another child, again unilaterally using these frozen embryos. Unfortunately, she miscarried in July 2004. And again, husband said this should have been disclosed to him in later financial remedy proceedings that took place in 2011, 2019 and 2020. And by failing to disclose that, that was fraudulent non-disclosure and her conduct was an offence under the Fraud Act 2011. So that's allegation two. And then it gets even more juicy because in September 2004, the parties entered into what Mr. Justice Mostyn called a morally repugnant compact, unbeknownst to husband's now current wife. Husband consented to provide sperm for IVF in exchange for a promise from wife that she would not seek child maintenance in respect of that child. And that promise was backed up by a 100k bond to stand as security against any future possible later child maintenance claims. Wife says that at the time, husband told her he acknowledged parentage, but he wanted nothing to do with the child. A 14-page agreement was signed with the fertility clinic for the proposed conception in early 2005. And husband's third allegation was that he disputes signing that document at all and alleges fraud in respect of that as well. N was born as a result of that agreement in November 2005. Now, both M and N were raised by wife, and they had profound learning difficulties and extensive care needs. So unable to cope financially, wife issued proceedings under Schedule 1 of the Children Act 1989. There were three consent orders made in 2011, 2019 and 2020, and I'll try and summarise each of them. So in December 2011, Mr Justice Holman made a consent order midway through a final hearing whereby husband would pay 20 grand per annum per child uplifted annually by the CPI inflation rate until the end of secondary education and he was to pay school fees. Then there was another consent order in 2019 which extended the term of M's maintenance until the conclusion of his tertiary education. And then a consent order was made in 2020, varying N, the younger child's maintenance, to 14,000 per annum. Now, there are various other things going on over this period of time, which I don't strictly need to tell you about to discuss the legal issues in this case. But I think it gives our listeners an idea of the acrimony in this case and what these poor children were also caught up in. There was an ongoing battle about the children being told about their true parentage. So wife was their gestational mother, I'll call it that, but not the mother whose egg was used during the IVF process. She launched injunctive proceedings against husband and his new wife, 
preventing them from revealing to the children their true biological parentage. In July 2013, Mr Justice Holman made an injunction prohibiting both husband and his new wife from having any contact with either child until they were 18. In 2019, husband brought yet another application to allow him to tell M that wife was not his true biological mother, and that was dismissed. M then began studying at university but dropped out in November 2019, so husband made another application to end the tertiary education allowance and to recoup payments from when M left university to April 2020. And that was compromised with husband getting that money back and being relieved from paying any further child maintenance. And then husband applied to the court for permission to disclose information to the children about their parentage. Wife preempted it by informing the children in April 2020 about the circumstances of their birth. So lots and lots and lots of applications to do with these children's parentage. What triggered the present application is that husband then disputed N's paternity. The fertility clinic released wife's medical records with her consent, I should say, to husband, and that confirmed that he is N's father. But the medical records also showed wife's treatment the unilateral treatment which led to her miscarriage in 2004 and her attempts to conceive a child post-separation. And that's how husband came to know about it. Very sadly, I should say, M died in August 2020. The cause of death isn't known, but it is mentioned in the judgment. In April 2021, husband then made applications to set aside the orders of 2002, 2011, 2019 and 2020, all those consent orders wife cross-applied to have his application struck out. So law students and lawyers will generally have heard the Lord Denning soundbite that, quote, fraud unravels everything. But Mr Justice Mostyn puts that in context and says, well, actually what he said was, no court in this land will allow a person to keep an advantage which he has obtained by fraud. No judgment of a court, no order of a minister can be allowed to stand if it has been obtained by fraud. Fraud unravels everything. The court is careful not to find fraud unless it is distinctly pleaded and proved. But once it is proved, it vitiates judgments, contracts and all transactions whatsoever. In short, fraud only unravels an advantage that was obtained by that fraud. And the fraud also has to be distinctly pleaded and proved by the person alleging it, in this case, husband. Paragraphs 28 to 35 of the judgment set out the law around fraud and it's helpful to refer back to if you have a case about fraudulent non-disclosure but in the interest of time and so our listeners aren't bored to death I'm not going to repeat at all and the paragraphs just after that set out the approach Mr Justice Mostyn took to the law. In short he summarily dismissed all of husband's allegations and finds that there was no fraud on any occasion and even if there were it wouldn't have made a difference. Husband would not have withdrawn his consent to those orders and a significantly different order would not have been made on those occasions. So going through those allegations that I set out again, and what Mostyn says about all of them, allegation one was that husband had no knowledge of the preparatory steps being taken by wife in the lead up to the 2002 order, and her failure to disclose those preparatory steps amount to fraudulent non-disclosure, and her conduct was an offence under the Fraud Act 2011. What Mr Justice Mostyn says about this is that she had no legal obligation to disclose those very preparatory paused steps. 
she did not cross the line between preparatory steps and an active attempt to deceive husband. And even if he's wrong about that and she had revealed those steps, a reasonable person would not have withdrawn his consent to that order because it would have made no difference to the outcome of those ancillary relief proceedings. Husband's counsel, it's mentioned in the judgment, repeatedly said, well, the 2002 agreement was incredibly generous. And what Mr. Justice Mostyn said is, uh, no, actually, it wasn't. It was very conventional for a short marriage. Wife got just under 20% of the assets. And if the case went to trial and the court knew what she had done, it wouldn't have made the slightest difference. Mr. Justice Mostyn entertains the other two allegations even less. Allegation two is that after the 2002 order, wife tried to conceive again using the frozen embryos and miscarried. Husband said that this should have been disclosed to him in later proceedings in 2011, 19 and 20. And so it was also fraudulent non-disclosure and her conduct was an offence under the Fraud Act. Husband was effectively saying that the order of Mr. Justice Holman in 2011 would have been different if the court knew that in 2004, mother had miscarried after having unilaterally used a frozen embryo. Mr. Justice Mostyn says, this is patently absurd, given the parties then entered into an agreement which led to the birth of a child. So he finds that it would not have altered one whit Mr. Justice Holman's decision. Allegation three is that husband disputed signing a 14-page agreement with the fertility clinic about N's conception, the younger child's conception, and disputes ever signing that document. Mr. Justice Mostyn said, that's an abusive process for you to raise that alleged forgery in circumstances where you accept you entered into an agreement with wife to that effect. So Mr. Justice Mostyn dismisses the application and says it's totally without merit. What do you think, Maddie? It's crazy, isn't it? I think this is such a good example. I think like people who want to be family lawyers should read this case as an example of why family law can become so difficult because there is no reason for these parties to have been litigating since 2001, but they found a way to do it and they will find a way continually because they dislike each other so much and have so much animosity to litigate pointless arguments again and again and again. And I think that is really a unique feature of family law, obviously, because the only reason you would do that, throw good money after bad, is because you were so angry with the other person. So I think it's a really good example of the real trappings of family law, both in children and money, but sometimes more in money in relation to ongoing, long term variation cases, consent cases, fraudulent misrepresentation cases, barter cases. They can go on and on and on and on for years and years and years because they dislike each other so much and this is a horribly tragic case I mean these parents have been through so much their child died they had to conceive the child in, in California with an IVF clinic you know they've been through so much for these children and they still treat each other in this way I mean it is it's appalling it really is and of course we don't know all the background facts we don't know what has been said in all the previous proceedings but I think I was on husband's part really struck by the spitefulness of the applications in respect of disclosing information to the children about their parentage. I obviously don't know why it is that he felt so strongly about that. I don't know why he felt that that was information that really needed to be shared with the children. But multiple applications to share information that no doubt would have been extremely distressing to them. When this woman, for all intents and purposes, is their mother, She's their gestational mother. She carried them. It doesn't really matter whether it was her egg or not. Yeah, and who's raised them and looked after them with no input from him for years and years and years. And his only input is to take her to court to try and tell the children that she's not their mum. I mean, that is 
the next level of animosity but you do only see it in the family courts and it is it is quite astounding truly hey maddie i'm going to ask you to intro our book talk podcast recommendation section because i'm trying to minimize how much i'm talking in this episode so as promised we are going to go through the transparency review now this came out i think at the end of october roughly um so it's been out for a few weeks and it is looking at transparency in the family courts, how to improve it, how to make it better, what recommendations the family court itself has for its own use and future, and really looking at what the difficulties are and how we can improve them. So it's entitled Confidence and Confidentiality, Transparency in the Family Courts. It's written by our president, Mr. Um, Andrew McFarlane, and it is very short and very brief and very concise and I think it's definitely worth a read if this is in any way interesting to you and there's a good section I think at the beginning that sets out what is transparency why is it important and what McFarlane says is this many of the decisions made in family cases involve judges and magistrates exercising a degree of discretion and in doing so they're representing the social and other value judgments of society as to what is a fair and proper outcome in a dispute about family finances or whether the state should remove a child into care or what is the future course that best meets the welfare needs of a child? It is legitimate for the public to know of these judgments, to provide a basis for trust in the soundness of the court's approach and its decisions, or to establish a ground for concern in that regard. These and other factors establish that there is a significant and important public interest in our society having and maintaining confidence in the work of the family court. Conversely, a largely closed system where the public are given no amount, no account of how the court operates leads to accusations that this is secret justice and that the approach to the court is unsound, unfair or downright wrong. Openness and accessibility to the work of the court may also enhance the ability for the system and those who work within it to learn and improve. So essentially, and I think the reason it's called confidence confidentiality is because it is about having confidence in the system. For years and years and years, family justice has been shrouded in a cloak of anonymization, a cloak of mystery, often judgments are not published. We don't know what decisions are being made, especially in the lower courts on a day-to-day basis. It's very rare that district judges or circuit judges' decisions are published or known about. And for the majority of people who use the family system, that is where they will be. They'll be in the magistrate's court, they'll be in front of a district judge or in front of a circuit judge. And there's very little inspection, accountability, confidence in having a system of transparency and accountability for those decisions. So That's why I think transparency is important. I'm not necessarily an absolute advocate for transparency in all areas. And I think I do have a particular concern in relation to public law. But what McFarlane does is looks at all the different ways in which we can allow transparency to become a thing that we strive towards without sort of ruining the safety, security and anonymization of children that we serve. So He says, for example, a trap into which I and I suspect many others may have fallen when first approaching this issue is to see transparency as raising a single question, should the family court be open to the public or press, to which there would be a single binary answer of either yes or no. Experience over recent years, assisted greatly by the excellent work of the Transparency Project, shout out Malvika and all of her team there, demonstrates that the formulation is very wide of the mark. There are, in fact, many ways that the family court can be more open and provide more information about what takes place there without altering the current restrictions on reporting and attendance. And then he looks at all the laws that have prevented publication, so particularly Section 12 of the Administration of Justice Act, which makes it a contempt of court, 
to report on family matters involving children, which means lots of money judgments often don't because they do mention children can't be reported. He looks at the FPR. He looks at all of the kind of statutory provisions which are already in place about anonymization and transparency and looks at whether those are sustainable in the long term. Particularly, I think, Section 97 of the Children Act, Rule 2711 of the FPR and the Administration of Justice Act. And he does accept, I think, properly and rightly, that there is a need for much greater openness. There are very substantial and important principles when you look at the issue of transparency, not only, you know, Article 8 of the ECHR, which is that there is a respect to private family life, enjoyment of a private family life. How do we balance that with the idea that people need to know what's happening in family courts? But how do we balance that with the idea that what is enjoyment to family life if the court is constantly intervening with it and we have no idea how they're going to apply their power? So there are balances here all the time. And I think what he essentially comes down on is saying, look, obviously we should have press, legal bloggers, people who want to report cases in courtrooms as much as we can. They will not be allowed to report children's names or schools or anything like that. Of course, that must be in the interest of the children. And they will not be allowed to basically purposefully misrepresent what the court is doing. And actually, little side note, when we were starting this podcast, we were thinking about doing a section that was like misleading headlines, because so often you get family cases completely misrepresented in the media, which say, you know, torture mum on the run or something. And it's actually much more complicated and much more complex than that. We decided not to because it was a bit depressing. But essentially... What McFarlane is saying is there is a risk with reporters, not even members of the public, reporters, that they will take the best bits of family justice, they'll take the sexy bits and the interesting bits and the abuse bits and the horrible bits and the baby pee bits, and they won't actually serve transparency any further because they'll just be reporting on the bits that everyone wants to read about. So he does think that the family court needs to have an ongoing intervention into how things are reported, what is said, and ongoing anonymization and respect for the families and so he has created a body like a family transparency panel that will continue to do that work as the court opens up and things become clearer so there is clearly an ongoing need for control and making sure that things are reported in a proper way and transparency is serving everyone not just journalists but also in actually allowing people to talk about it what is happening on the ground how are things being reported and the family court needs to have a continuing role in that so I think that's a really really good way of doing it he also says he wants much greater family decisions reported which I think is interesting more reported cases for us which I think also that's sort of quite interesting aspect of this is that for barristers reported cases are like really important and complex and they say your names on them and it's sort of a mark of quality of work if we're going to start reporting everything, then obviously that quality mark sort of goes away, which I think might be a good thing because it seems a little bit unfair to use people's personal circumstances for your professional gain. So I can sort of see the I can see the force in that argument. But also the more things are published, the more we understand the day-to-day workings of the family court, the more we get to talk about them, the more we get to have all the conversations that we have here every two weeks. So I can't see a problem with that. I think that's a really, really good idea. And also lower levels, you know, magistrates, district judges, circuit judges, let's put them somewhere. Let's see what they are saying in the same way that we look at what high court judges do every day. The Court of Appeal does every day. So I think that's a very, very good idea. He says he reminds us that in 2018, he published guidance on anonymization and the treatment of sexual abuse allegations in published judgments. And 
the reason for that is that it sets out obviously a very clear opinion of young people that they are profoundly concerned about the publication of their personal information given what they will have undoubtedly been through and he says it establishes two very clear propositions firstly that even where there has been a concerted effort to anonymize a judgment it's possible to pick up data points which can then via web searches lead to identification of the child and family whose private life was before the court secondly published judgments often contain full detail of the evidence of abuse that a judge has heard not only is the publication of such detail inimical to the interests of the child, it also may be picked up and circulated by those who trawl the web with a perverted interest in such material. The young people and the researchers rightly ask, why is it in any way necessary for this detailed material to be published at all? So what he says is, I propose that we do not use detailed accounts of abuse in published judgments. You simply have a summary of the findings made, not including the kind of specific detailed language, and having a very basic factual summary sufficient to enable sense to be made of that part of the judgment and to make sure the overall analysis makes sense. And he says another option is that in a case of particularly sensitive and intimate allegations, the judge should consider setting out that detail in an annex, which would not be published as part of the judgment. So there are ongoing questions about how we manage this and what we do, but I think the general tone is that we are moving towards greater publication, greater transparency, and that is no bad thing in the view of the president and it can be managed in such a way that it's not this binary let's just let anyone walk into family courts at all times we're still not at that stage in terms of public hearings but we are looking at how we can sort of turn the stone of family law kind of shine a bit of light on it and see how it works day to day what do you think yeah the report was unsurprisingly welcomed by the transparency project of which i'm part of the core group it's kind of what they and other transparency campaigners have been asking for for an extremely long time. And I really do want to re-emphasize what's said about this binary approach to it's either transparency or it's the protection of children's anonymity and their respect to private life, right to respect for private life. It's not that easy. And I'm, I was a little bit dismayed by some of the responses to the report, which did seem to take that binary approach of Oh, he's saying open the courts and this is going to be absolutely devastating for children's interests. That's not what he's saying. Obviously, with transparency will come an increased responsibility on practitioners and on courts to make sure that they are doing everything possible to avoid jigsaw identification to prevent children from being exposed to the public glare. All of that is going to be something that will always be in the back of our minds. The Transparency Project is a very helpful anonymization guidance document, which I refer to frequently. And one of the matters that they put in there is unnecessary detail, including graphic sexual abuse. And they encourage lawyers when they are reviewing judgments that are about to be published to check for detail that is surplus to requirements and that can be left out. So a lot of this is things that lawyers should be doing anyway when there is the prospect of a judgment being published couple of things I wanted to pick up on. So on the issue of judges publishing more judgment. So what McFarlane says is, I would want all judges to publish at least 10% of their judgments. I don't think that's a, a bad thing at all, especially at district judge DDJ level, where they're the ones at the front line of the family justice system dealing with particularly cases involving domestic abuse, day in, day out, that has been under particular scrutiny in the press in recent years. And it's important that public confidence does build in the family courts, particularly in that area. It does raise a few questions for me, though, because what 10% will it be? Is it just that judges will randomly publish any 
10% of their cases? Is it the 10% that's the most legally interesting? Is it the 10% that has the greatest public interest? It's not entirely clear to me what 10% he says should be published. It's also the practical issue of district judges and DDJs and circuit judges have insane lists. They have so much work to do. And publishing a judgment isn't as simple as directing a transcript and saying, let's get it on Bailey and that's it. If there's no written judgment, and often written judgments aren't anonymized either, it will take some time to go through a judgment and to remove, it's not just a case of removing names and dates of birth, it's it's a case of looking at other identifying details, things that are redundant and, and don't need to be included, you know, have there been any police incidents that could identify the parties to the local community if they were published Is there any personal characteristics of any of the parties that would make them easy to identify? Anonymizing a judgment actually takes a bit of work. That's why McFarlane is pressing for an anonymization unit that would assist judges with anonymizing judgments, because that is going to be something that does add to their burden of work. And they have an awful lot of work to do already. They are very much under the cosh. We've spoken before about the lack of judges and how people just don't want to be judges. And this is yet another thing that they will have to deal with. Yeah, I think it's very positive that more judgments are going to be published. I do agree with that. But I think we have to be mindful of the practical difficulties that are going to arise off the back of that. I should also say there's a separate conversation going on about anonymization and financial remedy proceedings. So on, I believe it was on the day this report was published, Mr. Justice Mostyn and his Honour Judge Hess launched a consultation on a proposal to introduce a standard reporting permission order to enhance transparency in financial remedies proceedings. But I wanted to mention the issue of transparency in in financial remedy proceedings, because off the back of this report, there have been really important judgments published by Mr. Justice Mostyn on the issue of transparency, and that's BT and CU and A&M. And what Mr. Justice Mostyn says in A&M is, in step with the modern recognition of the vital public importance of transparency, my default position for the future will be to publish my financial remedy judgments in full without anonymization, save as to the identity of children. And derogations from that default position will have to be distinctly justified. Now, it seems that a lot of financial remedy lawyers just completely lost the plot after that judgment came out and thought that this is a kind of astonishing take for Mostyn. And what he does in A&M after BT and CU was released and, and there was all this commentary that arose out of it, is he then says, there seems to have been a certain amount of surprise caused by my decision in BT and CU and kind of characteristic Mostyn dryness. There seems to have been a certain amount of surprise caused by my decision in BT and CU to abandon anonymization of my future financial remedy judgments. Views have been expressed that I have snatched away an established right to anonymity in such cases. This is not so. I do not believe that there is any such right. My personal research, and you know that Mostyn is going to be conducting some methodical, comprehensive personal research that will stand up to scrutiny. My personal research tells me that before the 1939 to 1945 war, and indeed until much more recently, there was no anonymity in the probate, divorce and admiralty division, children and nullity cases apart, and even then only sometimes. 
There is no example after 1858 of a first instance judgment in a variation of settlement case being published anonymously until as late as 2005, when N and N and F trust was reported in that form. Even in nullity cases, a general rule that they should be heard in camera was unlawful. That case, far from being uh, the case he's referring to, Scott and Scott. That case, far from being a P and PDA exceptionality, is in truth precisely the contrary. It's a clear statement to adopt modern metaphors that the PDA was neither Alsatia nor a desert island. See Earl Lawburn at 447, where he succinctly stated, the divorce court is bound by the general rule of publicity applicable to the high court and subject to the same exception. And then he says, it's therefore difficult to understand how the practice arose of routinely anonymizing ancillary relief judgments given in the family division, the successor to the PDA, or in the family court proceeding at high court judge level. So far as I can tell, it is traceable back to the provisions in the matrimonial causes rules that made the registrar the usual first instance judge. The registrar always sat in chambers. Rule 78 subsection two allowed an application to be referred to a judge and rule 82 subsection two provided that the hearing of a referred matter shall unless otherwise directed take place in chambers. I believe that the earlier versions of the MCR said the same. It is to this banal provision that all the secrecy that has surrounded financial remedy judgments can probably be traced, although routine anonymization of first instance judgments does not seem to have taken hold until the 1990s. So far as I can tell, the practice of anonymizing judgments given by high court judges is explicable only by reference to the hearing having been in chambers and behind closed doors, that that of itself would not explain the adoption of the practice as a chamber's judgment is not secret and is publishable whether or not anonymized. So that's that on that. And I challenge anyone to face up to Mostyn on his meticulous research about whether or not he's interpreted that history correctly. So I, th I think it's, it's right that there seems to have been this convention adopted in financial remedy proceedings for no good reason. And that is now being relied upon to resist proposals for greater transparency in the financial remedy courts. But I'm sure that we're going to hear a lot more about that once the consultation concludes and once we have a report off the back of that. I don't know as much about this as you do, but I think the arguments about transparency don't necessarily relate to financial remedies in the same way they do to public law and court protection and Children Act cases, because the idea of those is that people are entitled to know how the court will treat a decision they make. And it is very difficult in financial remedies to take any view about how a court will treat your decision because other people have different financial setups to you and different amounts of money and all of that sort of thing. So I'm not necessarily, whilst I completely agree with most, there's no reason not to do it. And I think they should do it, you know, fine. But I'm not necessarily convinced that it's got the same public interest value as children decisions and decisions in relation to the state removing children from families or the state making decisions about vulnerable adults, as it does about what the state will do about your respective money. I mean, I think the case that I talked about is a good example of, because I was reading this case, and actually when I first read it, I missed the point that mother had eventually told MNN about their parentage. She preempted father's application and she decided to just tell them. And I emailed around the judgment and said, am I being really dumb here, but isn't it very risky to name the parties and to publish this judgment with the named parties when the children don't know of their own parentage. I mean, obviously I was wrong about that because the children did actually know 
if they had not known, I do think it would have been risky to publish that judgment with the party's names because jigsaw identification would have been very easy. So I don't think it's necessarily the case that financial remedy proceedings do not have any of the characteristics that concern us so greatly in children proceedings about right to private life and sensitivity and all those sorts of things. It's just about weighing that up against all the competing interests in relation to open justice. It's not going to be a one size fits all. I, I appreciate there are going to be presumptions and starting points, but every case is going to be looked at by each particular judge on its particular facts. Submissions will be made by the lawyers about the extent of the anonymization. And ultimately, it will be a matter for the court what's going to happen. But at least it's getting people thinking. It's getting people to put open justice on the agenda. It's getting people to think, actually, your starting point should be X. And we should not be starting from the position that the family courts are secret, because that's the reputation we've cultivated, isn't it? The family court is not trusted. Um, we have very, very little public confidence, especially in children proceedings. And that's something that we have to combat because the system only functions when people have trust in it. And when there is no trust, then it falls apart. Yeah, I agree. Of course, I think it's very important. I think the issue that you raise about, you know, children being told about their parentage or children being informed about decisions that are made in their regard, those don't often come up in financial remedy. It was, it was really a twist of fate that that happened in Cathcart and Owens and was mentioned in the judgment. But I, but I take the point. I mean, I think, as you say, the starting point is much better. And if we can start with financial remedies, there's no reason why we can't move on to the more kind of public facing aspects of family justice. I think certainly there is a huge argument that if we start there, we can see a watershed towards broader transparency and broader trust. So I certainly agree with that. Just before we move on to Tweet of the Week, I just wanted to mention a podcast that I think is very relevant to all we've been talking about on transparency, which I listened to a couple of years ago. And it's part of a series by the BBC called Corrections. And it was a series about news stories that had not given the public a full picture of what the actual story was about. And there's an episode called the Carbonara case. You might recall, Maddie, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of uproar about the Times' coverage of a child who had been placed with a Muslim foster carer. And one of the more lurid, salacious details was about how this child had not been allowed to eat carbonara because of bacon. And then it turns out that actually there was a lot more to this case than what had been reported in that particular coverage. So I think that's a really, really interesting episode to refer our listeners to, considering that we kicked off our discussion about the transparency report on the real issue and the real concern about more transparency is about accurate reporting. And it's about making sure that those who have the responsibility for relaying to the public what is going on in the family justice system are doing so, giving people a full picture, full and complete picture of what's actually going on, because otherwise it undermines the entire point of greater transparency, which is to build public confidence when actually it's doing the direct opposite. So that's a really interesting episode to listen to, which I will link in our show notes. But moving on to Tweet of the Week, Maddie, what's yours? Um, I don't have one this week, sorry. So you're going to have to do a good enough one for both of us. I don't have one that requires a lot of discussion, <laughs> but it's probably for the best because I really am on the last legs of my voice at the moment. But my tweet of the week is from Elijah Granite at EZ Granite. And he tweeted that the BSB handbook is unreadable by humans due to terrible formatting and therefore a stumbling block to those seeking ethically to manage their practice. I reformatted it so that barristers can easily comprehend its teachings. The BSB handbook is terrible and it is impossible to navigate. So the fact that he has actually sat down 
and compiled it all in one place so that not only law students can prepare for their ethics exams, but practitioners can refer back to their duties with relative ease rather than trying to navigate this completely technologically inept document that the BSB has managed to publish. So that is available on his profile. He's effectively uploaded it onto Google Drive and made it available to everyone. So thank you, Elijah, for that. Yeah, that is amazing. I think we've retweeted this on our Twitter page at P Embarrassing for those of us who aren't following. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, really helpful. What really, What's really funny to me is the BSB are doing so much, so much at the moment about equality, diversity, inclusion. They've got so much more resources, so many more um, talks, seminars, opportunities, articles. And for some reason, the handbook hasn't been updated since like 1880 or whenever it was written, which is really funny to me. So if anyone from the BSB or knows anyone at the BSB listening, might be somewhere to start next because it is completely impossible to read. And it's very difficult for us to know what the right thing to do is in certain situations requiring calls to the hotline. So I would recommend putting some pressure on the BSB about that because it is just completely unworkable. I completely agree with you, Elijah. And for bar course students who are very worried about their ethics exam, don't worry, because once you get into practice, you usually just ask someone in chambers for the right answer or you call the ethics hotline. So chill. Yeah, the answer is there's a hotline. You'll be fine. (laughs) Okay, thank you so much for joining us this week. We're sorry we're a little bit delayed, but we will try and get back on schedule next week. This is a really, really busy time for us both, as I'm sure it is for all of you. So hopefully you won't hate us too much. Hopefully Marvika feels better very soon and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks a lot, everyone.